I was considering whether the room I speak of would really be large enough to accommodate us both comfortably, and also whether, mine, I shouldn't have said this if you hadn't pressed me, you would not constitute something in the nature of a hindrance to my work. Rogers laughed loudly. Well done, Parkins, he said. It's all right. I promise not to interrupt your work. Don't you disturb yourself about that. No, I won't come if you don't want me. But I thought I should do so nicely to keep the ghosts off. Here, he might have been seen to wink and to nudge his next neighbour. Parkins might also have been seen to become pink. Oh, I beg pardon, Parkins, Rogers continued. I oughtn't to have said that. I forgot you didn't like levity on these topics. Well, Parkins said, as you have mentioned the matter, I freely own that I do not like careless talk about what you call ghosts. A man in my position, he went on, raising his voice a little, cannot, I find, be too careful about appearing to sanction the current beliefs on such subjects. As you know, Rogers, or as you ought to know, for I think I have never concealed my views— No, you certainly have not, old man, put in Rogers, sotto voce. I hold that any semblance, any appearance of concession to the view that such things might exist, is equivalent to a renunciation of all that I hold most sacred. But I am afraid I have not succeeded in securing your attention. Your undivided attention was what Dr. Blimber actually said. Rogers interrupted with every appearance of an earnest desire for accuracy. Mr. Rogers was wrong. Vide Dombian Son, Chapter 12. But I beg your pardon, Parkins. I'm stopping you. No, not at all, said Parkins. I don't remember Blimber. Perhaps he was before my time. But I needn't go on. I'm sure you know what I mean. Yes, yes, said Rogers rather hastily. Just so. We'll go into it fully at Burnstow, or somewhere. In repeating the above dialogue, I have tried to give the impression which it made on me that Parkins was something of an old woman, rather hen-like, perhaps, in his little ways, totally destitute, alas, of the sense of humour, but at the same time dauntless and sincere in his convictions, and a man deserving of the greatest respect. Whether or not the reader has gathered so much, that was the character which Parkins had. On the following day, Parkins did, as he had hoped, succeed in getting away from his college, and in arriving at Burnstow. He was made welcome at the Globe Inn, was safely installed in the large double-bedded room of which we have heard, and was able, before retiring to rest, to arrange his materials for work in apple-pie order upon a commodious table which occupied the outer end of the room, and was surrounded on three sides by windows looking out seaward. That is to say, the central window looked straight out to sea, and those on the left and right commanded prospects along the shore to the north and south, respectively. On the south you saw the village of Burnstow. On the north no houses were to be seen, but only the beach and the low cliff backing it. Immediately in front was a strip, not considerable, of rough grass, dotted with old anchors, capstans, and so forth, then a broad path, then the beach. Whatever may have been the original distance between the Globe Inn and the sea, not more than sixty yards now separated them. The rest of the population of the inn was, of course, a golfing one, and included few elements that call for a special description. The most conspicuous figure was perhaps that of an ancien militaire, secretary of a London club.
and possessed of a voice of incredible strength and of views of a pronouncedly Protestant type. These were apt to find utterance after his attendance upon the ministrations of the vicar, an estimable man with inclinations towards a picturesque ritual, which he gallantly kept down as far as he could, out of deference to East Anglian tradition. Professor Parkins, one of whose principal characteristics was pluck, spent the greater part of the day following his arrival at Burnstow in what he had called improving his game, in company with this Colonel Wilson. And during the afternoon, whether the process of improvement were to blame or not, I am not sure, the Colonel's demeanour assumed a colouring so lurid that even Parkins jibbed at the thought of walking home with him from the links. He determined, after a short and furtive look at that bristling moustache and those incarnadine features, that it would be wiser to allow the influences of tea and tobacco to do what they could with the Colonel.